Hey everyone, before we listen to today's episode, a quick word of warning that there is content that will be discussed that is pretty heavy and for some might be too explicit for you to listen to. So please exercise caution, especially if you are listening to this episode with a group of people. If you want to know more about what I'm talking about, just go to our show notes and scroll down to see the exact questions we're asking. So with that in mind, let's listen to today's episode. Hey everyone, welcome to the Midtown Podcast, and we're doing something a little different. We are taking all those questions you texted in from the Embodied series, and we're going to be answering those as best we can, one by one, and this will be the first part of maybe a two or three part series because you all sent in a lot of questions, I think over 70. For the sake of organization, we took the questions relating to the first two weeks of the series, Body and Gender. And we're going to be answering those questions today. So I'm here with Pastor John Ludovina. Hey, John. Hey, Jake. Glad to be here, man. Excited about it. Yeah. And even before we hit that first question, I think it's just helpful to note for all of these, what we're going to try to do is quickly give you some biblical framework and categories for how we think about these questions. And then also, whenever it's helpful, we're going to try to reference a a resource, a book, an article, a podcast, something. We've already put out a lot of those, but I think that'll be one of the most helpful ways we can maximize our time in doing this. Yeah. So if you swipe over to the show notes, we should have some of those resources already in there for you because we love you and we want you to be equipped as much as you can get equipped. So let's tackle that first question. Someone texted in, does God care what I do with my body as far as how I dress, how I eat, how I move, etc.? If I'm a psychosomatic union, so they're talking about language we used in week one, If I'm a psychosomatic union, is my outward appearance at all reflective of my inward beliefs slash reality, or are those just personal choices? I like that this is a thoughtful question. Someone's taking what we talked about in the series, but didn't directly address the specific issue. And they're kind of taking the next, they're taking the next step with the question of like, okay, if that's true, what does that mean about all of these adjacent related issues? And so I love that. I love the thoughtfulness in it. Uh, I think category wise, There's some real yes and no to this question. Mm -hmm. There's a certain level at which uh, your outward appearance might say almost nothing about your inward beliefs and reality. So for example, give me an example. If I wear a puka shell necklace, that does not reflect anything about my identity per se. Uh, It doesn't have to. In my own life, the only time I ever wore a puka shell necklace, (laughs) it indicated that I was, I had an idolatrous desire to get girls to like me in middle school. And those things were awful. I don't know why I ever wore them. Yeah. It'll probably come back in a few years, I imagine, (laughs) as style does. I'm going to see one of my kids wearing a puka shell necklace and be like, (laughs) go to Hawaii, get out of here. Yeah. A more serious example uh, here's one that comes up a lot. Okay, here's one that comes up. And, and a lot of when I say the yes and no of this is it gets tied up in religiosity mm-hmm. and trying to earn God's love by following all the right rules and making sure we never mess that up. So tattoos is a really funny kind of hot button issue for a lot of Christian people. Loosely based off of one verse in Leviticus 19 that specifically is talking about the the whole of Leviticus 19 is talking about being holy as God is holy, being set apart, being different, being other, being holy like God is from the people and the cultures around them. And so the cultures around them, one of the things they would do is they would get these spirit tattoos that they believed could help their loved ones in the afterlife. 
And God tells his people, yeah, don't do that. Yeah, stop that. Literally in the yeah. same verse. It's like, don't get these kind of tattoos and don't don't practice bloodletting where you would bleed your own blood over someone's grave to try to help them out in the afterlife. And God's like, no, that's not how the afterlife works. I help people in the afterlife by my grace, my goodness, trust in me. You don't have to try to do these extra things. So then from that, we extrapolated to no tattoos ever. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, that's a weird jump. That's not really, that logic doesn't really flow very well. And so depending on the person and depending on their motivation for getting a tattoo, it could have nothing to do with their internal beliefs. It could be, I, I mean, their internal belief could be nothing more than I like art. Mm-hmm. And I thought this was a beautiful piece of art that I wanted to put on my body and that's fine. Mm-hmm. Or they could have done it for some odd spiritual reasons that are idolatrous and not healthy at all. And so... You know, this person didn't even ask specifically about tattoos. I'm just using that as one example where it's like, man, it, it, the, the heart motivation in this actually matters more than any kind of specific rule. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So then you do get into things like, so they ask specifically how I dress, how I eat, how I move. All different ones. So scripturally, we do have some rules about how we dress, right? And I'm even thinking like uh, in in our first Corinthian series, we specifically had a whole sermon where we talked about gender and we talked about, do I dress in a way that generally speaking conforms to cultural norms regarding gender or do I reject those? And the general rule is don't pick a fight where you don't need to. We have a massive fight in the mission of God to see as many people as possible come to know God's love. So why am I going to pick a cultural fight where I don't need to pick one? Now, at the same time, I think we also have a missional principle where Paul's going to say, to the Jew, I became as a Jew. To the Greek, I became as a Greek. And sometimes the clothes you wear, missionaries do this all the time. They go into a culture and they wear the clothes of that culture as is befitting, as is in a not rude way, they learn the cultural norms and they use those cultural norms to be able to relate to the people. So depending on where you're coming from, it's like once I'm just, I'm just going to keep coming back to what's your heart level motivation. Sure. Is your heart level motivation to honor God, to love Jesus, to be faithful to who he's created you to be, or are you wrapped up in what our culture does and says, which is you've got to express yourself at every single level and your body is meaningless and you just now need to shape it and make it so you have to be awesome in mm-hmm. how you express all of your bodily exterior. Mm-hmm. And that's how you earn your goodness and your righteousness. And then it's like, Oh yeah, no, no, there's, there's no room for that. So, but it's just like, it's yeah. funny how quickly it goes from this is an, a nothing burger to, Oh, this could be a really serious heart issue. Yeah. And so you need some, some wise people in your life who know you and are walking alongside you and can help you see, Hey, maybe, maybe your motivation's off here. Maybe it's okay. Yeah. I think about as well, part of the cultural narrative we hear is like, your clothes do define you. So like express yourself. And if someone has a problem with that, then whatever, you know, that's their problem, not yours. Um, I'm thinking about in first Peter three and Peter's telling them like, be mindful of what you wear. And I've heard that used sort of like in terms of the modesty conversation. But back then it had to do with um, more social class. So like they were wearing jewelry in a church environment where there was different social classes, poor and rich. And And it was showy. They were trying to prove I'm rich. I'm awesome. Everybody look at me. And by doing that, they were creating division within the church. And Peter's like, hey, no, stop. Uh, So I think having that missional category, but even like a, I want unity, not division 
sort of category as well. And I think that is far more helpful than perhaps rules we received if you grew up in church culture back in the 80s, 90s, where it was like, you know, don't show your ankles because heaven forbid, you know. <laughs> yeah. But having the theological principle yeah. of mission and unity and I want to love Jesus and his people. So how does that inform the stuff I wear? That's, uh, I love that. I think as much as we can, we want to shift the mindset away from very technical, ticky-tacky, specific rules. And we want to shift to Jesus's emphasis on the rule of love. Mm-hmm. Use your freedom. You have a lot of freedom. Use it to love mm-hmm. one another. If that's your primary motivation, man, that's that's pretty counter to our culture that is in so many ways narcissistic and all focused on be true to yourself, express yourself, and nothing else matters. And it's like, what? you got to hold that really open-handed. Yeah. Your freedom is a gift, but you don't need to wield that strongly and hold to that tightly. Jesus didn't. He let go of all of his glory, majesty, freedom to serve. And that's what he calls us to do in so many ways. Yeah, that's good. Uh, I My brain goes to also uh, preacher sneakers. Like yeah. that might be an example where Peter would say, stop that. You're what are showing you off thousand dollar shoes. Cut that out. One principle that I heard at uh, summit church up in Raleigh, um, they had, they were going through some of their leadership principles and values and plumb lines is what they called them. And one of them was we nod to fashion. We don't bow to it. I thought that was a really good concept where it's like, we're aware of the cultural fashion norms and we're not trying to pick a fight there and be weird in an unhealthy way that makes people think you can't relate to my life at all, mm-hmm. but we're also not bowing to fashion in the same way that a lot of people do. Sure. And so I just thought that was a helpful category that could be helpful to someone. One more thing before we move on from this question, the specific question about movement and what we eat to me is a pretty different question than what we wear. Mm-hmm. So what you wear is a choice about fashion and how do you want to relate to people and connect with people and be comfortable and mm-hmm. look the way that you want. Mm-hmm. What you eat, the Bible has a whole different set of categories and rules. Mm-hmm. And I would say, I think in our culture, in a lot of ways, we have some really unhealthy patterns. You know, we were, we were just talking about in a staff meeting this morning that some of our health and wellness initiatives for our staff are in light of ways that our culture is really broken and busted up on this. And so you see this with rampant obesity, you see this with rampant eating disorders, and all of that at some level either has to do with I overvalue my body and the way that I look and or I am turning to food to give me something that I should be and could be receiving from God and his spirit, from the mm-hmm. power of the gospel. And so uh, I, I'll, I'll just, I'll speak for me and I think a lot of people relate to this concept, but I feel some kind of, it's not always conscious, right? That's part of the problem with idolatry. This is a subconscious thing in me. I feel some kind of way. I don't really know how to deal with that. Comfort food is comforting. Mm -hmm. And I oftentimes overeat either out of boredom or out of, I haven't fully processed with the Lord, deep sadness, anger, things that I need to be actually be processing with him in a healthy way. Mm -hmm. And so what you eat, I do want to encourage people on. It's, it's really important. It's really important. Our, your body is a gift. It's a beautiful gift given to you from God. And what you eat, how you move, exercise, all of that is a great way to honor God with our bodies, to take care of them, not just so that you can look as good as you want and have that sweet bikini bod by summer, but so that you can be as healthy as possible to bless as many people as possible for as long as possible in your life. And that yeah. goes, if you're married, that's your your wife. If you have kids, that's your kids, your potential grandkids down the line. But that's also just for your neighbor. And physical 
So uh, it's, where is it? First Timothy four, four I think sure. that says like bodily training is of some value. And it's, it's interesting how scientifically we're kind of finding out more and more. It's of a lot of value to mental health. It's of a lot of value to emotional health. Mm-hmm. Um, something as simple as walking right after your meal is super helpful for digestion. So like there's a lot of things with what you eat and how you move and exercise that is just related to your overall health. And because our bodies are gifts from God made by him in his image, we do want to honor him with yeah. how we take care of them and treat them. Yeah. It's a stewardship issue, it's just stewardship like anything issue. else. And it could be that where we are as a society, that how we view our body, uh, my body doesn't matter. My soul is what matters the inside. Even if you're a Christian, you can have that sort of dichotomous view but just like everything else, just ever, like every other category, yes, you can take it to the extreme or you can ignore it, but there's a fine balance of it's, it's a stewardship thing. The next one. Yeah, let's move on to our second question here. We've got this series camps out in Genesis 1 quite a bit. There are a variety of views on how literally to interpret Genesis. Does the whole argument crumble if we can't look back at a historical Adam and Eve created in the way Genesis describes? Jake, what you think? I got some thoughts. I want to make this really short. What matters most is how Jesus interprets the Bible and what how Jesus interprets the Bible According to Matthew 5, I came not to abolish the law, but I came to fulfill the law. So he's not just talking about the legal stuff. He's talking about the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. He's talking about the whole Old Testament, how he is a fulfillment of that. And he is constantly affirming the authority of the Old Testament as God's word. So that's one layer. Jesus affirms the authority of the Old Testament, and specifically, Matthew 19, Jesus is citing both Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 when people are asking him about marriage and divorce. He's saying, did you not hear it was said, God created them male and female, the two will become one flesh. So Jesus has in his mind the authority of the Old Testament, and at one point, like, doubles down and affirms the authority of Genesis 1 and 2. So that being said... People can interpret that a number of different ways and still hold to like biblical fidelity as far as what about science, what about young earth, what about old earth, and still hold to the authority of Genesis 1 and 2 because Jesus holds to the authority of Genesis 1 and 2. That being said, if you want a great resource on the nuances of that, A book I would highly recommend is called Four Views on the Historical Adam. That is very good. All of these are coming from different Bible thinkers who have different takes on creation and interpretation and still affirming the authority of Genesis 1 and 2. So I would highly recommend that to you. Yeah, I mean, probably the only thing I'd add here is uh, we talk about this a lot, especially with non-believers. I don't want to argue with you about a bunch of small little things until we've just landed where you land on Jesus and Mm -hmm. the the resurrection in particular. And if you believe correctly, biblically, not correctly, uh, that Jesus was a historical figure who lived, died, rose from the grave. Well, then you've already got a category for supernaturally. Sometimes God 
overrides the natural rules of science. He, he just does. Christians have... Sometimes. 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 Not all the time, but sometimes. Important. And so you have that category. And so I, you can take that back into Genesis then. I, I'm pretty sure that I would say all of our pastors believe in a literal historical Adam and Eve. There's really no question there. All of us agree uh, on a authoritative understanding of Genesis one and two, whether or not we interpret it in identical ways. Mm-hmm. And I, that's just one of those things where it's like freedom and flexibility, freedom and flexibility. But man, people, it's like, if you bring in any flexibility, it's like, Oh, I think I've lost all of the inerrancy and all of the fidelity of the scriptures. Like, no, that's yeah. not the case at all. Yeah. But I, sure. I, I just want to come back to how does Jesus interpret it? I want to, I want to approach the Bible the way that Jesus does. Yeah. And it's very interesting. No one in Matthew 19, no one says, well, Hey, Hey Jesus, you would, you're talking about like a literal, literal seven days, symbolic seven days. What are we doing? It's like, no, nah, you're missing the point. The point is it's authoritative. All right. Next question. Uh, so when my dad passed away, he asked if we could bury him as he did not want his body to be cremated. So he could rise up when Christ returns. Is there a difference between being buried versus being cremated or any other form of handling the dead? So this is, a, I think, an important question that ties to our embodied series. Uh, what does it matter? what happens to my body after death. Yeah. Jake, give a little bit of the historical. When did, cause historically speaking, most cultures burned bodies. Mm-hmm. Funeral pyres were kind of the generally most common form that people yeah. used uh, to deal with remains after someone had died. When did that change? And tell us a little bit about that. I've got a article in there that you can read about, but from my understanding is Greco-Roman world, even the ancient Near East would generally burn their dead. It was generally tied to uh, pagan ceremony, honoring, worshiping other gods. Egypt is probably the only exception because they would mummify their royalty, their pharaohs. But, but the, only royalty because it was so expensive. That's correct. Incredibly expensive. The Jews, on the other hand, they would bury their dead. They would wrap them in cloth when Christians came on the scene and, you know, we understand that Christianity was sort of like Judaism fulfilled. It was sort of a continuation of, so then Christians, when the rest of the world would burn their dead, they would instead bury their dead and put them in coffins. And there was a theological principle behind it of Romans six, you were buried with Christ in baptism so that you will one day eventually be resurrected with him bodily. So because of that, they put value on your, body is not just a shell where your soul lives. So once your soul goes away, then who cares what we do with your body, but let's preserve your body. Let's bury it in the ground. It is a seed thinking about first Corinthians 15. It's a seed being buried in the ground that is one day going to raise back to eternal life. Now here, here's a funny thing. And I, I think we land in the same place here. Um, a very open-handed because I think all of that's beautiful and I love the historical reality of that and kind of where it came from. And I like to be grounded and kind of where, what are the categories? Where do they come from? At the same time, the specific way that I've heard this question phrased sometimes is, well, when Jesus returns, my body will be raised. And if I, if I was cremated, I've messed that up in some form or fashion. Mm. And that question to me just strikes me as like not very well thought out. What I mean by that is everyone's body decomposes in the ground once they die. Mm -hmm. Cremation speeds that process up an Mm -hmm. incredible amount. So I think it's entirely possible that you choose, your loved ones choose to be buried as a way to honor, man, God gave us our bodies, our bodies matter, and we're not treating them like trash that doesn't matter. Or 
you could at the exact same time choose cremation is the cheapest option and we're going to go with that option because no matter what when christ returns mm-hmm. something unbelievably supernatural has to happen to recompose my body and my spirit together and so it's mm-hmm. like i do think there's one of those things where there's a lot of freedom to land really open-handed but not in a it doesn't matter flippant way sure but in a in a beautiful and whole, once again it's a, it's there's just there are stewardship issues even in death um and you could approach it either way and be really faithful and honoring god and how you do it yeah absolutely i think open-handed is the way to think about it with just a a nod to here's how christians in the early church viewed that that was really radical for its time and i think about hebrews 11 36 through 38 so hebrews 11 is the hall of faith and it ends with talking about all these martyrs and all these terrible things that happened to their body. Like some of them tortured, maimed, executed. John the Baptist was beheaded. And all that saying, we believe because Jesus supernaturally rose from the dead bodily, physically, that no matter what happened to your physical body after death, that absolutely God will recreate you, form you into your resurrected body, whatever happened. All right. Next one is a heavy one. What does the Bible say about miscarriage? Yeah. Uh, The short answer is that it's woefully sad. That it's one of those many, many, many effects of, or in uh, results of sin and all of its effects that we talked about specifically in week five of the series where we got into, we, we focused on desire, but we really talked about, we started that sermon talking about Genesis three and the result of sin and rebellion and all of the destruction and breakdown that entered the world. So all, uh, human illness, disease, breakdown comes in our, in our theological understanding comes from the fall. And so miscarriage would be, would fit into that category at every physical level. Now there's a a whole, this does kind of branch out into a larger topic of fertility issues. And some, some couples, some individuals, they get pregnant, they lose the child. Miscarriage, in birth, at a Mm -hmm. very young age, grievously sad, Mm -hmm. so painful at so many different levels. And then there are other couples who struggle to ever get pregnant in the first place. And that's also really difficult and really sad and wherever you're at in any of that process you've got to have a category for some of that might be nothing more than nothing more than the general effects of sin on a broken world that we live in and then there are other categories and specifically i think as christians we look at all of the brokenness of the world and we see hey even in the midst of the pain and in the midst of the broken in the midst of all that is hurt i know and i see and I trust that God's at work and I see him working good in the midst of it. And so even how I grieve and how I faithfully show hope in a good God, even when I'm dealing with pain, good, that, that glorifies God. That points the people around me watching to a better hope beyond the brokenness of this world. Uh, there's a way to understand God's sovereignty that says, Hey, I don't have the child that I want. And we, we talked about this a lot in week five, right? With, I have some unmet desires. I want to have a child. I don't want to be grieving the loss of my child whether that was miscarriage before birth or the loss of a child shortly after birth. The way that we grieve by pressing into God Mm -hmm. instead of running from him 
is a beautiful, glorious signpost to the reality of life with God. So we, it's, it's like kind of a both end with all, like with all of suffering, we mourn, we grieve, and with every bit of our ability, we cling to Jesus as we do. And on the days that we can't, we have built our lives with church family around us who are going to mm-hmm. pray for us, who are going to support us, who are going to run a meal train, who are going to mow our yard when we can't, who are going to support us and push us towards him. Anything you'd add to that, Jake? Yeah, I agree with everything you said. I think about how in scripture there are accounts of infertility happening and the Bible doesn't shy away from that. It doesn't shy away from the grieving of it. So if that is you, the Bible sees you and acknowledges you and how you're not alone in that. So not only in the scriptural story, but I think about just the high percentage of women, generally speaking, have more than likely uh, experienced miscarriages and how even in our church, uh, women who have experienced that. So you're not alone and to bring that to God and to bring that to others. And I think what suffering often wants us to do is to isolate and we need to bring that to the light and experience healing. It's always a funny one because it's like, first and foremost, I think the woman experiences miscarriage because it's something that does happen inside of her body. And also we don't want to like minimize moms and dads can both grieve the pain of that in Mm -hmm. heart-wrenching ways. And Mm so, you know, uh, just one reference that we didn't have in the notes, but I'd love to throw in the show notes. Uh, One of my favorite books on pain and suffering is by Tim Keller, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. Uh, The first section of the book is a little more philosophical and how different cultures think about it. And then the second and third section, he gets a lot more personal and pastoral with it. So depending on where you're at in life, if you want more of the philosophical theoretical, I would start in section one. If you're in it right now, if you're in the fire, if you're going through hard things, I might start with section two Um, as well. I mean, a while ago, back in Luke, we did Jesus and suffering. I'd recommend you check out those sermons and see if there's any comfort, any help there. But get help. Don't do it alone. Talk to your life group, talk to pastors, get counseling if you need, um, and we, we hurt with you as you go through it. This next one is a pretty heavy one, and it's the last one in this category before we move on to the gender category. So this one asks, how do I start believing again that my body matters to God after multiple rapes? How do I see through a different lens than my shame lens? How do I not destroy the relationships around me in that process? Man, it's uh, two difficult questions to land this week on um, that really, right, they come back around to week six and resurrection and resurrection hope that our bodies experience breakdown in so many different ways. And this is such a personal uh, victimized way to experience sin and its effects. Um, let, me, let me start just by talking a little bit more broadly and then we'll get a little more personal pastoral for this person. Uh, broadly speaking, um, rape is an abhorrent evil, uh, a crime, sin. I, I think it's one of the things that I, I get really lost when certain loud deconstruction voices, different people that are in my feed are like, oh, just a quick reminder, there's no such thing as sin. Man, what are you saying to the rape victim? Like, well, I don't know how you land there with a con- with a clean conscience. I mean, it's it's abhorrent sin, and so kind of like what you just said, Jake, on our last question. It's good to know that the scripture acknowledges and deals with painful realities of rape in different circumstances. So uh, even just bigger than that, 
in Genesis 4. One of the first personal effects of sin, Adam and Eve's rebellion, the next chapter, one of their sons murders his brother. So sin and its effects get violent really quickly. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the worst things about this type of sexual sin, aggressive rape, molestation, you take violence and sex, which is supposed to be such a beautiful, good gift of covenant expression of oneness, and then you merge them together in this, uh, I mean, abhorrent abomination. There aren't strong enough words to talk about how how broken this is at every category. So instead of giving, I'm taking. Mm-hmm. Instead of loving, I'm hating at some level. I'm, I'm breaking down someone's body. I'm dehumanizing them. I'm undignifying them. I'm rejecting everything about who they are as an image bearer of God. I'm not in any way glorifying God or them in that process, you know? And so, but, but like you were saying, like the Bible mentions specific examples. You've got Dinah, you've got Tamar, um, Bathsheba, depending on your interpretation. But I think the most faithful biblical inter- interpretation is that King David absolutely abuses his position of power to force Bathsheba into a sexual encounter and relationship that she was not looking for. Mm-hmm. Um, so in all of that, God sees you. You're not alone. Um, I, I, I a, re- a resource that I'm going to reference and that it comes out of the story of Tamar specifically uh, in Second Samuel 13. Uh, depending on your translation, it reads, where can I carry my shame? So she's pleading with her See, half-brother, step-brother. Do you remember that? Tamar and Amnon? I believe half-brother. Yeah. So, yeah. so she's pleading with Amnon, yeah. and she's, she's saying, hey, don't do this thing to me. Where could I go? And the, uh, one of the translations is, where could I be rid of my disgrace? And so that's the, the name of a book, Rid of My Disgrace. Strong recommendation for anyone who's been a victim of sexual sin uh, and or any kind of crimes where you've become the victim of someone else's sexual sin violence um let me we're just staying kind of broad in general if you are if a friend of yours if someone you know is confess is not confessing is telling you that this has happened to them they're revealing that this has happened to them recently or a long time ago you're gonna want to have a really gentle hand in reminding them of the truth of who god is how he made them in his image with value dignity and worth the fact that that was taken from them in this crime doesn't mean that those things are not true for them. Um, if it happened recently, so one of the, there's a, there's a, a tension you got to walk in here. And the tension is on the one hand, you want to, as much as you can, restore the agency back to this person. So part of the victimizing process is that they got no say in what happened to them. And in a healthy, correct way, you want to give them a say in what happens next. At the same time, we want to encourage people to, to pursue as much accountability and prosecution as possible when crimes have been committed. So I'm, I mean, we're going to the hospital. We are doing rape kits. We are talking to law enforcement. And that's as much as we can, as much as the victim can. Because in part, likely they're in a state of shock. And they might want to make a decision later on that they're not capable of making right now. And so, man, you've just got to thread that needle. You want to get professionals involved if, if necessary. You want to be as helpful as you can, reminding them they get to make their decisions. They, get to have, they do get agency, and you want to encourage them in the direction of 
holding the the criminal accountable for what they did um which is anyway it's all really difficult there's no easy way to handle this it's it's so broken at so many different levels um you want to be super kind super gracious and then i would just you know kind of i've kind of been interweaving them but getting a little more personal and pastoral if you have been the victim of any type of sex crime at some level that action communicated to you so many lies demonic yeah. demonic yeah. lies you are not worthy of love you are not an image bearer who has inherent dignity and value and worth you are not it's so many things oh man you walk away from it so many victims walk away from that with like i'm dirty now i'm shamed and it's like but you didn't even do anything you know mm-hmm. something was done to you and so I do want to say to this person, depending on how recent it was, it was really recent. Like I already mentioned, I want to encourage you as much as you're able to pursue accountability and prosecution. If it was more further away and really either category, whether it was recent or a long time ago, um, you're going to have to do the hard work of unpacking what are some of those lies that have been internalized. And you've got to pull those out and bring them to the truth of God's word. I don't think you're going to want to try to do that on your own. I think you're going to need God's people and God's spirit and God's word. More than likely, some really helpful counseling um, to to deal with that, to unpack that, to bring those lies out to the surface. Because generally speaking, we shove them down and they're affecting us, but we're not always even fully conscious of how they are. Um, And then, like, and let me just say one more thing here. That's not fair. It's not fair that you have to do that hard work. It is reality. You, for your own healing, you've got to press into Jesus and find that healing that is available. And I just, you know, as an encouraging note, I would just say there are too many people, and the, st- the stats are even worse, the statistics are even worse, that there are so many people, primarily women, both men and women, who have had sexual crimes committed against them, and we've seen so many of them find healing and hope in Jesus. We've mm-hmm. seen so many of them be restored to where, as the person asking this question says, their shame lens is not the primary lens that they go through the world looking yeah. at all of life with. They do get back to a restored place where uh, maybe one of the lies is like, oh, all men are evil because this man did this thing to me. And it's like, well, that's not true. That's not true. All of us are sinners. All of us are capable of evil, but we're also capable of being brothers and husbands and fathers who are following Jesus in really faithful, beautiful ways. And all that restoration is possible, at least in part. Someday it will be fully restored. And Lord has the day. We can't wait for his return and our resurrection bodies where all of this healing will be full and final and not just partial. Yeah. Amen. That's a good one to end on. Uh, We're already pretty far into this episode, so... Let's go ahead and end this one, and we'll be tackling more questions next time on gender and maybe even marriage if we get the time. So thanks, John. Thank you, Jake. All right. See you all later. Bye. Bye.